I'm Rabbi Sharon Brous from ICAR, and I sat down today with Representative Adam Schiff, who represents California's 28th Congressional District. He is a legend. He's in his 11th term in the House of Representatives. So we sat down on the cusp of the anniversary of the attempted coup in a time in which all of the alarm bells are sounding, that the end of democracy is a real and present danger. We talked about what Trump's ascendancy said and says about who we are as a nation, about what happened to the Republican Party and why it was so hard for there to be even just a few people who would stand up and speak out against what was happening. We talked about the spiritual crisis in our country where literally millions of Americans today believe the big lie that the election was stolen in 2020 and are willing to take up arms in order to fight. We talked about the role of a stratified media in fueling a false narrative and maybe the end of bipartisanship in our era. And we talked about the fierce urgency of now. What's at stake in this moment and how alarmed should we be? And what, if anything, can we do about it? Thank you so much for joining me for this important conversation. I just want to say this book has been my constant companion um, for the last two weeks and has been uh, it's been an incredible read and I'm so grateful to you for putting it all down in writing and I think for generations people will be turning to this book to really try to understand um, what we've all just experienced so let me just start with a word of immense gratitude to you for the book um, and for all of your work. I would love in our time to sit and, and talk together about your Jewish journey. Um, and, and which you described so beautifully in chapter two, but January 6th is before us. We are now one year from the violent breach of the Capitol. And I've been thinking about how as Jews, we mark time commemorating when our enemies tried to destroy us, whether through enslavement or exile or genocide. And we do that not only to commemorate what, what we've lost and who we've lost, but also really to make sure that we've learned the lessons of history and that we can pass them on one generation to the next. And so as we come to January 6th and mark this terrible anniversary, we really wanted to take the opportunity to discuss with you with grave urgency, not only what happened to America last year and in the years before that, but also the lessons that need to be learned as we really continue to stand at the edge of the abyss. And I really believe as you do that we are facing a dangerous and uncertain future right now. So. I am especially grateful to you for helping bring us through this moment, this anniversary, with some really deep awareness of how we got here and what we need to do moving forward. So I start with my gratitude to you for that. Thank you so much. Uh, right back at you. And uh, I think you're absolutely right. Um, one of the things that we seem to have forgotten over the last uh, several decades uh, is that uh, the fight to preserve democracy is not over. Uh, it is not, uh, as we, I think, came to believe in the post-World War II generation, uh, an immutable law of nature that we always will be a democracy or that the world is moving in terms of uh, towards uh, greater democratization, greater liberalization, greater freedom, um, that uh, the moral arc of the universe, as Martin Luther King said, may be long, but it bends towards justice, uh, only to find out at the moment it is not bending towards justice. Uh, and there's nothing immutable about, uh, about that idea. Uh, and so um, we have learned, I think, uh, a painful and difficult lesson over the last several years about just how precious and vulnerable democracy turns out to be. 
I want to start, if we can, your book is really a, a meticulous account of the last five years. The New York Times called this a blistering indictment of Trump and his Republican enablers. And we know that in many ways he was unlike anyone who had ever come before and so much the natural outgrowth of the party and the climate from which he emerged all at once. I wonder if you can just reflect for a moment on what his ascendancy said and says about America? Well, it's a really important question uh, and a difficult one uh, because I think we do need to recognize that so many of the trends that were in motion prior to his coming to office um, were, were present uh, to, to some degree. We were going to go through this kind of turmoil, but he turned out to be really a, a supreme arsonist uh, and made use of all of that dry timber uh, to set us ablaze. Um, but I think uh, a number of things have contributed to where we are today. We are an increasing, increasingly small global economic world uh, in which uh, through automa automation and globalization, uh, millions and millions of people have lost their jobs and others are at risk of falling out of the middle class. Uh, and that has created, I think, a profound uh, and global economic anxiety that demagogues have been able to play upon uh, for years now, which is why we have seen a rise of autocracy uh, predating Trump in places like Hungary and in Poland, uh, the rise of far-right parties in Austria, in Germany and France, uh, the rise of dictatorships uh, or wannabe dictators in the Philippines and Brazil and elsewhere. So I think those profound underlying economic uh, challenges, the growing disparity in wealth in this country, um, have made it fertile soil for demagoguery. Uh, at the same time, we had these uh, trends uh, in terms of how we get our information now. Um, we don't get our information from the same place as we did when I was a college kid and rushed home to see Walter Cronkite's last broadcast, uh, when we agreed on a large body of fact, and we agreed there were such things as fact. So these are some of the underlying conditions, but you know, perhaps one of the most important underlying conditions here at home was, was the nation's continuing struggle to deal with issues of race. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and we, we saw on January 6th that as people paraded through the Capitol with Confederate flags and Auschwitz t-shirts, um, that this was not just a Trumpist insurrection, but a white nationalist one as well. Uh, and, uh, and, and much as we witnessed after Reconstruction, the recoil uh, that lasted you know, a century, uh, we are seeing again, and whether it was the election of Barack Obama or just the changing demographics of America, but we are once again seeing a, um, a backlash uh, against the, the, the changing color of America. Um, and, and I think that contributes also to this uh, really um, difficult, ugly, divided uh, time in our history. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up. I'm sure you saw Barton Gelman's recent piece in The Atlantic, which is, I think, a very important piece. Um, called the next coup has already begun. Um, very much aligned with what you're writing and speaking about that January 6th was, was practice. And 
we now, I, I'm astonished by these stats, but we now know that something like 36% of Americans think that the election was stolen. And among Republicans, it's close to 80% who believe that Biden didn't actually win the election. But what's so interesting to me about what Barton Gelman writes and, and uncovers and what you're saying now is that he says that the only other common belief among the insurrectionists, aside from that the election was stolen, was that whites are in danger of being replaced by black and brown people. I mean, that most of the insurrectionists come from counties where the white population's in decline. They're, they believe in the great replacement theory, which is this horrible European style anti-Semitism that's at the heart of the white nationalist lie. And, and you talk in the book about how Trump used this trope often um, as dog whistles, even in, specifically in attacks against you. And it was very explicit on January 6th um, last year when he said, you're the real people, you're the people who built this nation. So we have to fight and fight like hell or we're not gonna have a country anymore. And it's so clear that that racism, that white supremacist ideology is really the ideological foundation of the big lie. Um, so so the question I, I have for you is that given that there are now, um, Gelman says there are 21 million Americans who believe that violence is justified in overturning the election results. I, is our country prepared to address the true nature of this threat, white Christian nationalism? Is that something that we are actually prepared to do in the days ahead? Uh, we have to hope uh, and pray that we are ready to confront uh, the, the ugly truth of how we got to where we are and the role that uh, race plays in this and racism. Uh, so I hope that we are. Um, you know, to me, though, it was it, it almost unthinkable that we would get to the point where we are today. So much of what has happened over the last five years would have been unimaginable, and yet it has happened. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, one of our two great parties in this country has moved away from its commitment to democracy, to its formerly its ideology of conservatism, uh, to essentially be an anti-truth autocratic cult of the former president and to embrace his ugly nativism, his ugly bigotry. Um, you saw in the, in the past other Republican presidents uh, like George W. Bush, uh, at least rhetorically try to embrace a, a broader vision of their party, a more inclusive vision of their party. Um, but, uh, but that gave away to, to this ugly demagoguery, uh, which is now the heart of that party. Um, you know, what, what Trump said in those rallies, uh, what he says to this day, is now echoed by Republican members in Congress who are no longer the outliers. They are really uh, more the core than the outliers uh, in the GOP. Uh, there's a reason why McCarthy and others won't confront QAnon it's because it's now such a vital part of the GOP base. And of course, QAnon uh, gives home to these anti-Semitic tropes, these replacement theory um, uh, uh, forms of bigotry. And, uh, and so uh, are we ready uh, to confront this? We have to confront it, whether we're ready or not. Um, it, has, it has infected uh, one, of, one of our two great parties and a large part of the country. Uh, and it, it, I think we have to see it with open eyes. Hmm. I want to ask you a little bit about your what you describe um, regarding what happened to your Republican colleagues. Um, I, I felt as I was reading the book as though I was witnessing the dissolution of a bad marriage in real time, especially in the early chapters of the book. You, you, 
you talk about how some of these folks were people who you really respected and had good relationships with, and then you watch them succumb to the immorality of the president. Um, and, and, and you said some of these were reasonably good faith actors at the outset of Trump's tenure, but they became foot soldiers um, to Trump and to Trump's White House. You talk about Nunez as he became zombie-like, um, Rod Rosenstein, Bill Barr. You have this incre incredibly thoughtful analysis where you say it's not that power corrupts, but that power reveals. And I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about what happened to these people in this time. Well, this to me was um, really something that was untold about the last several years. Uh, that is, we knew a lot about what was going on in the Trump White House, but we were not, I think, uh, I don't think the public was as aware of what was going on under the dome of the Capitol uh, and how he found so many people willing to enable his, uh, his immorality. Mm. Um, and you're right, I worked with these people. I, I admired many of them because I believed that they believed what they were saying. And I would come to learn that either they didn't believe it at all, or more likely, none of it mattered compared to what was most important to them, which was their ambition to hold their own their job in Congress, or maybe get a better job in the Senate or a cabinet position uh, in Trump's White House. And uh, and I, I I think the way that happens, the way you find good people allowing themselves to be so badly used is one small life, lie followed by a bigger one, uh, one mm -hmm. small act of uh, immorality followed by a larger one. Um, what Donald Trump did over four years uh, is he would ask uh, Republicans to come with him uh, with his lies, with his immorality and one step uh, after another, uh, one, one smallish indiscretion followed by a larger until they were so uh, far in, there was just no turning back. They had mm -hmm. made their bed and now were forced to lie in it. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, you see these examples all the time. Uh, to me, among the most graphic illustration of a phenomenon that you mentioned about power revealing um, is if you look at the example of two members of Congress, Liz Cheney and Elise Stefanik. Liz Cheney, uh, who is a person of in, in, you know, considerable character and integrity and courage, uh, who said, I will not carry this big lie. Uh, if it costs me my position in leadership, it will cost me my position in leadership or my position in Congress, but I will not undermine our democracy to save my job. And on the other hand, you had Elise Stefanik who put up her hand and said, well, if she won't tell the big lie, I will tell the big lie. I'll tell any lie you need me to tell. Mm -hmm. if I can have her position. Um, and sadly, I would learn that there were only two um, like Liz Cheney, uh, and there were 200 um, like Elise Stefanik. Uh, mm -hmm. and, um, uh, and, and so I think we've learned a lot about people, uh, a lot about particular people, yes, but a lot about human nature. Um, I, I should say, though, that one thing that really got me through this time uh, is not the stories of capitulation, but the stories of, of great courage and heroism. The Marie Ivanoviches and the Fiona mm -hmm. Hills and the Alexander mm -hmm. Vindmans, the people that stood up uh, at the risk of their careers, sometimes facing down death threats when they did so. And one of the things that I found so interesting uh, about this is many of those heroes of this period, like Yovanovitch and Vindman and Hill, were immigrants to this country. Mm -hmm. um, who had a certain uh, ideal in mind about this country and vision that brought them here. Uh, 
that they didn't take for granted. Um, and, and they cherished and the love of that ideal gave them strength and purpose and, and uh, was part of their character. And, and to me, it demonstrated how many people who have chosen the United States were not born into this country, but have chosen it um, because of what it represented, uh, understand the ideals of this country uh, better mm -hmm. than anyone. I've many times wondered what what could we do so that such that America could live into Alex Vindman's vision of what America is, right, and and what it could be. And I remember there was an op-ed in the New York Times. I don't remember who wrote it. Right around the time of the election in 2016, called I think it was called "A Few Good Men." And it was essentially saying it will only take a few good Republicans to stand up and stop the Trump agenda. That's all we need, just a few good people of conscience. And unfortunately, there were far fewer than than even the few that we needed. And my, my daughter, Eva, became bat mitzvah the Shabbat uh, a week. It was a week after the 2020 election, after the 2016 election. And we talked about the right, the rhinoceritis, the story um, from Eugene Ionesco, which grew, grew out of you know Nazi, the Nazi takeover of Europe, the the whole idea of the kind of spiritual disease that turns humans into hideous beasts because that's what's normative in the culture. And at the end of that play, the one guy who's left is shouting, "I will not capitulate! I will not capitulate!" It's Marie Ivanovich. It's Alex Vindman. It's you. And 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 what you were witnessing in government, I, I will say we were witnessing a kind of micro version of this in faith communities around the country. And I, I mean, I warned the Jewish community right after the election, we are survivors of genocide. We need to decide which side of history are we standing on. And I know that most of us would never actively support somebody who nods to authoritarianism. But there's a danger that we will accommodate evil with our silence because, you know, it's good for Israel or because of taxes or because of what other whatever other excuses. And it's really it's that that's incredibly dangerous um, for us. And I I've been equally shocked in the non-governmental spaces to see how quickly otherwise decent, thoughtful people were able to silence their opposition as these injustices unfolded. And I know you're dealing with that every single day in the halls of Congress. You're absolutely right. And I, I think this has been such a trying time uh, in the faith community. I think it's, you know, very much a similar uh, challenge uh, among the press, um, where you don't want to be partisan as a member of the press or the faith community. Uh, at the same time, if you're going to call out uh, people for uh, for lying, for um, aspiring to authoritarianism, um, you can't you can't withhold it because of a desire not to appear partisan. Uh, and uh, and I think it it um, it has been such a vexing time uh, for so many of us, uh, even apart from those communities, to see family members and neighbors um, avert their eyes or embrace this or rationalize their support for it. Um, and it, it, uh, it, it, I'm sure it has broken up a great many families and friendships and neighborhoods. Um, but this is a time I think where we're all called upon. Um, I, you know, I'm optimistic we're gonna get through this, 
But I also have the conviction that what we do in this moment will determine how much damage we have to suffer along the way. Mm. Uh, and I feel the very same sense of urgency that you do, uh, both about our democracy and our planet. Uh, and so this is a critical moment um, uh, where, you know, we have to be counted. The, the, the question that I have for my colleagues in Congress, who I've watched uh, over the last several years, is what are you going to tell your children and grandchildren? Uh, when they come to you one day and they say, you know, grandfather, grandmother, please tell me what you did when that awful man was running the country. Tell me you didn't sit still while he was putting kids in cages or mm. while this was going on or that was going on. Please tell me you did something. And I don't know what they're going to say. Um, at, at one level, I can understand what they're doing. They're afraid of a primary uh, or they're afraid of something else. Um, but at another level, what's the point of being there? What's the point of, of being anywhere um, if you're not willing to do the right thing when it really matters? I think that's the question for all of us. And what's the point of whatever power we have if we're not going to use it when, when the hour demands it? And we keep talking about urgency. And I want, I want to just put a fine point on it. I mean, you've said, Snyder said, Martin Gelman has said, that, that a failed coup attempt is really a rehearsal for whatever the, the, the next coup will be. And you said the system held, but it barely held. And now what they're striving for is kind of a more sophisticated version of a coup that will undermine our democracy. Um, we, we know right now that these legislative efforts in every single state are, you call that, you said it's no less than an insurrection by other means, right? That the same forces that that planned and executed January 6th are hard at work today. Timothy Snyder wrote the other day something absolutely terrifying. He said, the candidate who loses by every measure, not just by the popular vote, but by the Electoral College, the candidate who loses by every measure will nevertheless be installed as president of the United States. He said, I think that's probably the most likely scenario in 2024, the way that things stand stand now. And, that, and that's absolutely terrifying. The most likely scenario is that the next election will not go to the person who has the most votes or even the most electoral college votes. And, and he said, we can lose democracy just like anyone else can. Just like most of the people in history have lost democracy, we can lose it and we're losing it now. I wonder as a rabbi, as a mother, as an American, are we alarmed enough um, you know, many of us are watching and we're saying we have a little window right now where we have where the White House and the and and the Congress and the Senate are all in the hands of the party that did not try to destroy democracy, the Justice Department. Why isn't more being done? And since you are heading the commission that is actually doing the work right now, can you tell us, are we operating with the requisite sense of urgency in this moment? No, not at all. And, and I, I would add to what you're saying that the worst case scenario uh, is not that this would be autocrat um, wins uh, in 2024, that Donald Trump is elected again in 2024. That's not the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario is that he loses and is nonetheless installed in power. Uh, and that is no, um, that is no uh, purely speculative outcome. That could very well happen indeed. That is what they are setting up to take place. And um, I don't know how we can be alarmed enough about this. Um, uh, as you say, and I, I think that the, the most vulnerable part of our democracy right now are these efforts around the country to 
strip independent elections officials of their duties and give them over to partisan uh, boards or partisan legislatures uh, so that they can uh, overturn the election. So that if they couldn't get the Georgia Secretary of State to find 11,780 votes that don't exist, they will have someone in that position next time who will. Um, they, they are literally driving out of these positions, these, these um, local technocratic elections officials, driving them out of town, often with death threats, mm -hmm. uh, to be replaced by partisans who will uh, overturn or find thousands of votes that don't exist. And, and so um, we ought to, uh, as a nation, uh, realize um, that there is nothing inevitable about the continuation of this experiment. Um, that the, the founders place such great faith in. Um, and, and I think what is necessary really is a national movement um, to protect and to save our democracy. There's not an easy legislative fix to what these Republican legislatures are doing. Uh, in many ways, they're following the, the model of someone they hold up now as their champion, Viktor Orban, the wannabe dictator in Hungary. It's the use of the instruments of democracy to tear down the democracy itself. Um, and, uh, and so um, how do you respond to that when one party controls those legislatures? Uh, through litigation, certainly, but more importantly, uh, through mass public action uh, and awareness, uh, a mass movement to, to save our democracy, I think nothing less will protect us right now. We know that one to two Democratic senators can and have and will probably continue to block any meaningful legislation to really protect the vote and other progressive uh, uh, progressive causes with which we're fighting for for great urgency. So you're suggesting mass public action might be actually more effective than legislative action in order to protect the vote. Well, uh, look, I, I think the legislative action is is vitally important. Uh, there's a, a handful of bills that I think are vital to the preservation of our democracy. But as you say, there are two senators right now um, who care more about an archaic rule that is not, not a constitutional requirement by any means, this filibuster. They care more about the, the maintenance of, of some kind of illusory vision of bipartisanship at a time where one of the two parties is, is no longer devoted to the same concept of democracy than they do about saving our democracy. And, and to me, uh, it is really quite inexplicable, um, uh, but that's where we are. And, and so I don't wanna put all of our hopes uh, in an epiphany by these two senators or a breakthrough mm -hmm. by the president, much as I, I keep working towards it and hoping and praying for it. Um, I, I think that we are gonna have to um, uh, work on plan B, uh, which is a, an all, you know, all out effort uh, to overcome uh, these Jim Crow laws, uh, but equally important to call out pushback against these efforts to essentially use democracy uh, against itself. Uh, we need to uh, embrace and protect these local elections officials uh, from the threats they're receiving. Uh, so that they won't flee, uh, so that they will do their job. We have to encourage other people to take those jobs, to run for those jobs. Um, it was not just Democrats, but a lot of well-meaning, courageous Republicans, Republican state uh, elections officials and local elections officials who were a key part of the fail-safe that uh, held our democracy together uh, during the last presidential election. 
And as you said, many of them are no longer in a position where they um, will have the power to do so in 2024. You wrote that one thing that differentiated Trump's circumstances from Nixon's circumstances was the presence of Fox News and the whole information ecosystem that sustains Trumpism, um, no matter how corrupt it is. And, and I think you, sa you said that if Nixon had had Fox News, he would not have been forced to resign. I, I wonder what your thoughts are about how we can break through the, the the stratified media, as you say, and really reach the American people, not just with the truth, because I think it's clear that millions and millions of people don't actually care about the truth, but with a convincing narrative about what kind of action we need in order to build um, a, a truly just society. Well, I, I would put uh, Rupert Murdoch in the category of those who, what are they gonna say to their grandchildren um, yeah. uh, about what, what they have wrought? Um, I, I cannot believe, for example, that Rupert Murdoch does not understand um, that the election was not stolen. Um, and yet there he is profiting from uh, primetime hours that continue to push these lies uh, and deceive the American people. Um, I guess at least one of his sons decided that he could no longer bear it. Um, but, uh, but this is one of the most cross-cutting challenges facing the country, which is how we get our information. Um, part of it is through social media algorithms that uh, choose uh, and curate for us what we see and what we don't see based on what we like and don't like, share and don't share. Uh, that has, uh, I think, served to balkanize us, make it more difficult for people to talk to each other, um, as well as uh, proliferate these conspiracy theories. Uh, so how do we break through that? How do we break through the, the Fox bubble? How do we break through these algorithms um, when in terms of Fox, there's really not much of a legislative answer to that. Um, and I think the, that the, the reality is it's going to have to happen one-on-one -on -one at the level of neighbor to neighbor, uh, community to community. Um, sometimes that's the only way to get through. Mm. And it's really tough. Uh, it's really tough. Uh, I, you know, I've become a kind of a human focus group with people coming up to me in the airport. Uh, the first two will say, you know, are you Adam Schiff? I just want to shake your hand. You're my hero. And the next saying, you're not my hero. You lie all the time. Why do you lie all the time? Uh, and I will look at these two people standing right next to each other. And I will say, I know what you're watching. And I know what you're watching. Right. And it's not, not the same thing because I'm the same person and I can't be both. Um, but, but sometimes, uh, maybe even most of the time now, it requires us all to engage uh, with our own family members, with our own friends, to have those uncomfortable mm -hmm. conversations because uh, um, I, I don't know any other way, frankly, to break through. It's such a powerful message because there's so much social homogeneity happening right now. And I think people are really self-isolating because it seems like our ideological foes are really pose an existential threat to the world that we dream of building. And so what you're saying is very important for us to hear. I mean, the only way that we will be able to affect change is actually engaging people in these really difficult conversations. You talk a lot about um, about the threats that you and your staff and many of your colleagues faced. You mentioned earlier um, what Marie Ivanovich and Fiona Hill and Alex Vindman faced. Um, I am astonished by what you've been through and what Eve and your family have been through over the course of the past many years. It should not be this way. Um, and so first, I really I, I do. I really want to thank you for your incredible service. And I I really pray that you continue to find the strength and the moral 
courage to continue to do what you're doing. And I wanna end with a with a question about really what gives you the strength to persevere? I, I will say that, you know, that the book's called Midnight in Washington. And you say in it that um, you called it that because midnight is the darkest moment of the day. But in our in our tradition, in Midrash Tehillim, it says, um, it says, when is it really dark? It's not midnight. It's the moment just before dawn because the moon and the stars have set, but the sun is yet to rise. And I'm afraid as I read your book that we are not in the darkest moment. We're in the moment that precedes the darkest moment. And yet I see people like you who every single day, you know, put on your suit and go out there and fight the good fight. Um, even, even when you know that you're up against impossible odds. Um, and so I really want to ask you, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What's the new story that needs to be written for America that you're helping us write right now? Well, the reason why I'm, I'm optimistic, uh, notwithstanding uh, considerable evidence to the contrary these days, is um, there are millions and millions and millions uh, more Americans who love and cherish our democracy than there are those who are trying to tear it down right now. Um, and we cannot allow ourselves to fall into despair. We don't have the luxury of despair. Um, we have to remain engaged. And uh, look, I'd be kidding if I didn't say that some days were a lot tougher than others. Um, and uh, there were plenty of times over the last several years, and there'll be plenty of times uh, to come, where um, the most I'll be able to do is get up in the morning and say, I just need to get through the day. Just mm -hmm. need to get through the day. At the end of the day, I would say to myself, I'm still standing. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes you got to take it that way one day at a time. Um, but, uh, but we should take it one day at a time with the confidence that we're going to get through this. Um, we're a deeply resilient country um, filled with people, good people, uh, loving people, caring people, uh, devoted to our democracy all over, uh, all over 50 states. Um, and so uh, I think when you're in crisis, it's, it's tough to, yeah. to see when it's going to end. Sometimes it's tough to see even if it's going to end, but this too shall pass. Mm -hmm. um, but we have, we have our, our mission right now. And as you say, Rabbi, and, and uh, what you said earlier uh, reminded me of something that the speaker likes to say, uh, which is know your own power. Mm -hmm. We all have the ability to influence our circumstances and those around us. And we can't all be Marie Ivanovich first through the breach, but we can all play our own role uh, in helping to preserve our democracy at its most vulnerable hour. And whether that hour is now or that hour is still to come, uh, we all have a role to play. And I'm really uh, enormously grateful for the role that you're playing, Rabbi. Oh, thank you so much. I bless you with safety, with health, and with continued strength to do this really, really important work for all of us and for our, our children. Thank you so much for joining us. If this is your first time with ICAR, I invite you to check out our website for more content, www.ikar.org. You'll find all kinds of interesting sermons, learning, conversations, guest lectures there. And we hope to one day even encounter you in person. Be well, stay healthy, take care. <laughs>